Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. of relic vegetation which have been preserved for centuries not by walls but by the strength of beliefs but actually we have the most amazing boundary treatments in the uk we have renewable carbon capture hedgerows there are ways of doing things which are probably not dictated to us by a rule book the carbon footprint of that individual street tree i was just blown away by that number i do see that there is quite a lot of room for us to you know kind of think out of the box there's that sense of permanence in your little bubble of time but really it is just a blink and i think landscape architecture is a good profession giving a bit of humility about your place in time you're listening to talking landscape a podcast which explores the big issues surrounding placemaking identity nature and the environment through conversations with leading landscape architects I'm your host, Marsha Ramroop, the founder of Unheard Voice, a strategic inclusion consultancy working mostly in architecture and the built environment. In this episode, we're zooming in on the importance of materials as we design our way through the climate emergency. Joining me are Claire Thelwall and Sandeep Menon. Sandeep is a landscape architect and tutor at Manchester Metropolitan University. He specialises in ecological urbanism, socio-ecological resilience of communities, and he wrote about the value of indigenous knowledge-based architecture practices in this edition of Landscape. Claire, the director of Thelwall Associates, has authored the book From Idea to Site, a project guide to creating better landscapes, and written about the use of petrochemicals in landscape. Uh, we'll come to these topics in a bit, but I want to start by asking you both though, why do you do what you do? Why is it important for you to work in landscape architecture? It's the only thing I've ever thought about working in. Luckily, my mum spoke to someone when I was about 14 about careers and their, ch- and their children. And so then the lady suggested landscape architecture as an option. I looked it up and thought, well, it's absolutely everything that I'm interested in. And that's not changed after quite a long period of time. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it, in <laughs> itself? Because, you know, careers actually pointing you in the right direction. <laughs> well, this was a, it wasn't a careers advisor. It was a random conversation in a Tesco's cafe. So it was a, a pure knew. fluke. Tesco is the place to go for your <laughs> careers advice as a exactly. team. Now we know. <laughs> exactly. But just those random conversations. And it was a bit of those sliding doors com- uh, moment, because if that lady hadn't spoken to my mum, I don't think I'd have found it as a career. 
And I've definitely moved into the sort of climate change, environmental part of landscape architecture. I've sort of found my home in that section of our profession. Fascinating. Well, we'll come on to a bit more about that uh, eco side of things, Sandeep. Why why is it important to you to work in landscape architecture? Oh, well, um, I think, Masha, a lot of it comes from my lived experience in India. Um, so I'm from um, a small state called Kerala in down south in, in India. And um, uh, so it's it's like when I was growing up, I would literally spend a lot of time outdoors and my mother would literally point me to plants just like what Claire was saying. You know, so I learned my first botanical name when I was three years old. I mean, not that it really meant anything, but then it definitely did pave uh, an innate interest in me to kind of be involved with plants, with nature. So eventually when I grew up and I wanted to be a doctor first, because my mom is a doctor and then I thought, okay, that's the natural progression path that I should take. And then I got into architecture but I wasn't happy with designing buildings, even though I was creative enough. But it was eventually a master's in landscape architecture where I found myself again, you know. And so, yeah, for me as well, I mean, I don't think there's any other profession that I could have done better, you know, if given a choice. Yes, and there's something about the two of you having this actually within you. It's not something without. So uh, these issues that we're discussing today are very feel very personal, I think. And and that came through in your writing as well. So fundamentally, I think since the um, agricultural revolution, humans have been imposing their will on the natural environment. And it's been trying to fight back ever since. And there's something about the juxtaposition of your two articles that really fascinated and fixated me on this point, because somehow it felt like your piece, Sandeep, holds the answer to some of the issues posed in Claire. So let's delve into them. Claire, if you had to summarise what your piece is about, how would you summarise it? I was thinking... What does my business need to do to get to carbon neutral by 2050, as you do when you're wandering along the street? And I was walking along and I sort of looked at everything, literally started looking at everything around me and thinking, what design elements can't I use if I'm not either having carbon within it or even fossil fuel derived materials? That's how my brain works. That's the kind of thing I think of when I'm walking along or if I'm planning an article with Paul, the editor. And I just thought even the pavement I'm walking on has got uh, crude oil derived things in it the post box I'm walking past it might be a metal post box but the plastic sort of covering of it was from fossil fuels the the, t- the markings on the parking bay it's just so embedded in everything that's around you and I just thought I had no idea how we'll get to the point where when we can't take oil out the ground to make those products how on earth will we you know how on earth will we have that list of materials that we currently have if we can't use them, um, fossil fuel derived items. Sandeep, your article, more about sort of going back to how things have been in the past. So explain about the background to your article. The inspiration for my article actually uh, stems from the fact that while I was a child and we would uh, visit our ancestral home, um, our ancestral homes, like many other ancestral homes, literally had a micro forest on the southwestern corner of the plot. And as kids, we weren't really allowed to go into them. So, and in reality, if you really look at them, they are patches of relic vegetation which have been preserved for centuries, not by walls, but by the strength of beliefs. Um, So we were told that, you know, it's in these forests that the spirits of nature live. 
and of course the not so pleasant wildlife you know the snakes and the other reptiles but as i grew up and when i uh, started questioning these i realized that if you look at it from a scientific and rational perspective but not from the western perspective but from an indigenous perspective uh, you'd realize that for an economy that is agrarian you know that's based on production of grain and saving it for future or what would be a better uh, pest control strategy than actually have a refuge for snakes which would and reptiles which would actually feed on the rodents so i think that was ingenious and not just that i mean um, uh, kerala is a lot like uk in the fact that those areas which may seem wild are actually been cleared in the recent past and they've been planted in reality these small patches which um, we call kava in our uh, native language malayalam and in english i would loosely translate it to uh, sacred groves so these sacred groves are the only relic patches of biogene pools of you know the original vegetation that actually survived in these geographies and and you know so when i grew up and when i saw these that's when i realized that there is so much of merit in the indigenous practices which we sometimes overlook because we've never been taught to look at them So yes my inspiration basically comes from there thank you fascinating That's because fascinating. <laughs> actually if you can see how uh, your approach to uh, landscape and your approach to your article uh, are both ends of i suppose the human spectrum of how we have treated our space mm. right so um that's why i was just so captivated by both of your pieces being in in this one journal um which of course you know anyone can pick up um, right now and go to the website to do so um but you you talk about claire um coming back to uh, your business and being carbon neutral by 2050 i'm hoping i'll be carbon neutral earlier than that but that was sort of the long term trends and just the the you know the choices that we'll have and to what extent you know you talk about taking more fossil fuels from the earth what about recycling is does does that hold any of the answers for you in some ways for landscape materials i think we're going to have to think differently about how we take existing sites when we do a new scheme because the sort of standard practice is just to go in and sort of clear it completely and remove absolutely everything and not consider any of the existing components and often it they are a pain because they're in the wrong place and they mean you can't use something for that or you you have to it restricts your choice of how you use a site but they're by far the best thing because they're already there all the damage has been done with their creation if you use those again that's a much better way of doing it and we should also be designing with that end in mind as well so our site isn't going to last forever someone else is going to take that over in the future we should be designing so their job is easier to reuse those materials for the next piece of work either on that site or somewhere else but somewhere close by hopefully so it's not a transport impact so to what extent do you think we can really learn from um that uh, approach it's very much more like sandeeps mm. and kind of just leave things it's funny because we sort of talk about indigenous things and like it's some unusual thing but actually we have the most amazing boundary treatments in the UK we have renewable carbon capture hedgerows yes. and it's just such a simple it's so ubiquitous we probably don't even think about it but if someone said i've invented a boundary treatment it stores carbon it renews itself if you damage it it'll repair itself with no extra help it's great for wildlife you'd be absolutely sold but we already have them there are kind of you know a very very long standing tradition in english and 
the UK in terms of boundaries between fields. I'm intrigued to know if there's other stuff that we could look at, sort of very, like you were saying, very site-specific things as well. And it'd be wonderful to get back to that mentality too. So you've got things that actually suit the site. So your site doesn't look exactly the same in sort of Exeter and Edinburgh. It would just have that local distinctiveness, which is also something I'm quite keen on promoting and following up. And suddenly you're nodding away. You're, you're saying, <laughs> yes, you know, I could see with your hand movements that yes, yes. What's going through your mind as you listen to what Claire says? There? Oh, oh, well, actually, uh, just today morning, I was wondering, you know, if, if I could find some examples in the UK, because UK is a new landscape for me, a new geography for me. I'm still discovering as, as I go by. And the first thing that came to my mind was the hedgerows. Um, yeah, and I completely agree with Claire. And I think if I'm going to kind of say anything more, it's just going to be repeating what she just said, because uh, the pet peeve that I have with landscape architecture in general, the way that it's practiced um, in, in the present time is that it's uh, becoming more and more ocular. It's more about the visual, you know, so it's, it's, it's like you take an image from the Pinterest and then you would like to kind of replicate it. So I come from India um, and many other developing countries. If you look at them, you know, you'd find... Um, a sort of image building which is made to look more like a European city or an American city of the twenty or the twenty first century. Um, so I think that, that it's time that we kind of moved away from it and you know kind of look back at our roots and then kind of realize that not all materials need to look the same. Not all standards have to be written by someone who sits miles away or probably thousands of miles away. What works for one region may not really work for the other. And when I say region, it could even be like maybe a few miles apart from one another because the geographic conditions are different. The climatic conditions would be different. The microclimatic you know, peculiarities would be different. So I think we need to kind of understand that and imbibe that. And I'm, I'm very glad that Claire you know, actually you know, brought that up today. Well, certainly, you know, when we think about the aesthetic um, and you're planting trees, this idea that we need to plant more trees and that in itself is problematic, isn't it? Yes, as a landscape architect, that's a hill I'll, I'll die on, is that we need more trees. But it does need, involve the context and the location and the commitment to care for it as well. Um, in the recent copy of the landscape, there's the article about the tree pits and the tree grids underneath the ground and the, the carbon footprint of that individual street tree. And I can't remember the exact number, but it's over 100 years payback time. If you just look at the carbon of the plastic versus the carbon the, store, the tree will store, I was just blown away by that number. And it's, the tree isn't just about the carbon. I mean, the street tree is a fantastic thing in itself. It's a, you know, visually it's wonderful, which is not something we, you know, we should ignore. It provides shade, it provides sort of that local microclimate. But if you are just arguing it on carbon... You do have, you know, you've run a very sort of uh, dodgy ground if you're arguing that it's paying back quickly. That doesn't ex doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but perhaps need to explore different techniques. And I do wonder if there's indigenous solutions that would help us grow trees in an urban setting that isn't so reliant on plastics and, and other carbon un um, climate unfriendly products. And I wonder a little bit more about that because we deliberately plant certain trees, but is there um, an element of... Uh, trying to uh, leave a space to see what 
develops and is that something a little bit more innate to that space then if we just... yeah it's always a difficulty in landscape architecture because if you left it to nature nature would bring something but it may be not in the time scale you could manage and also probably not the time scale the client's looking for or what the client would be after i mean there are some circumstances a little bit like that this amazing planting done by um, nigel dunnett and james hitchmo where they do seed mixes um, it's very, very sustainable because it's on a sand bed. And what you do is put the seed mix down for um, herbaceous perennials. So it's not trees, but then the, tr the seeds that meet the conditions best and are happiest in that setting will be the ones that germinate. So you get a slightly tailored scheme to the condition it finds itself in. But actually, I think in an urban setting, the space is so tight. I don't think you could let nature do its own thing because the chances of the sort of tree that would work for 150 years germinating in the spot that you've given it are fairly slim so we have to kind of cheat nature a bit and grow trees on and, and put them in at a larger size so it comes back to this imposing our will oh, on yes it's very much about what humans want <laughs> and what we need especially when you know we've got vehicles in our uh, spaces that are major sources of air pollution um uh, i've got a, a statistic here that the uk has 247,800 miles of roads and in London alone uh, just to, to mix up the things here you've got 14,000 kilometres of road the equivalent of 10 Hyde Parks uh, is designated for parking alone no and it always I was walking along the road and I saw a sign said car park and obviously you see that sign and suddenly my brain thought we make lovely little parks for cars we create a little park for them. I know that's not the, uh, sort of playing with the words, but it sort of felt like we, we give all this space and attention to a thing that sits empty most of the time and is pretty unpleasant for the planet. And we make lovely space for them. They get the prime location in city centres. You know, they take up masses of space. The one thing that really um, made me think was the, sort of all the tarmac and bitumen and asphalt that we put down. And actually, it's been a real revelation for humanity. A nice dry surface to walk on or drive on has just transformed you know people's lives it's something that people aspire to in lower income countries because it means you can reliably and safely get between two places but that comes from crude oil if we're not taking crude oil out of the ground we can't put those surfaces down we i don't know what the solution is yet i don't think there's anything yet to be created that's as good as tarmac <laughs> i am um, listening to you there and i'm reminded of a quote by van gogh he says uh, normality is a paved road, but not many flowers grow there. And um, I think there's something about bringing those two ideas together mm, about yes. how, yeah, this is this is what we want. This is the way we want. We want ease. This is the exactly. easy. We want dry normal. feet. We want to be able to get from A to B in a sort of designated time-ish. And it is a luxury. And it is something, you know, in a, in a high-income country, it's a privilege that you can do that, that the ground, you know, summer winter you'll be able to get from a to b on a surfaced road and not think twice about it but the cost is enormous you know all the ground underneath that is completely sterilized for good you know the, there's not lovely earthworms underneath it and i don't actually know what it does to the carbon underneath it i don't know if we've done any research it's not doing good things because the water's not going through but it's such a part of our sort of culture and ease and luxury of our lives really that's just maybe that's the next piece of joint research for you both <laughs> is is what happens to to underneath and um just you know when you look at projects uh that have this petrochemical dependence what does low 
dependence on these things actually look like? I was thinking about that and it's difficult to say. So you might look at more traditional materials, more sort of indigenous things that, that are closer to their natural state. It's a bit like processed food and, you know, whole foods, that kind of thing. So stuff that's nearer to that end of the spectrum. So gravels that haven't been processed or um, stone that's been cut. But then if it's transported a long way, then the impact of that really does um, sort of impact on your carbon score for your scheme. So I don't know that there's an answer. I'm, it's, it's a kind of it's one of that we're at that point where we've started asking the questions, but I think we're still quite a long way from good solutions. And it's always going to be complex because landscape architects have to juggle so many different things because we work in four dimensions. Our stuff is not going to look at its best till long after we're dead. So you're having to deal with living material and balance those things together. So it's always a compromise, the work we do. But as long as that's one of the factors we're starting to consider, that level of fossil fuels and the carbon, at least that's the beginning in that process. And is there a sense that um, when we look at, you know, the kind of in, going back to that indigenous idea, mm. that actually that is forward thinking is actually to look back and I think that's a good um, opportunity really to, to bring you in again Sandeep to, to talk a little bit more about um, your approach. Um, you've laid out a couple of examples of how Indigenous knowledge based practices have not only created amazing places but also created resilient structures that are adaptable. So speak a little bit more about that you know a, about living um, in these kinds of really thoughtful spaces. Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, one of the examples that I wrote about is about the living bridges of Meghalaya. So Meghalaya is a state in the northeastern part of India, uh, nestled in the edges of the Himalayas. So they're soft mountains, they're not rocky mountains per se. Um, and Meghalaya receives about 11,000 mm of rain. Now, just to put that in perspective, our oh-so-rainy London that we all complain about gets about 500 to 600 mm of rain annually. So one can imagine the amount of rain that falls there. Um, and it's densely uh, forested as well. So the communities who live there, they are kind of cut off from the rest of um, the state. And um, getting in heavy machinery to actually build bridges are probably not an answer. And because of the hilly, steep terrain that's there, there are like innumerable uh, streams which crisscross the landscape as well because all this rainwater needs to be channeled and it eventually reaches the delta, right? So the people there, they realize that, um, you know, one of the most ingenious ways of connecting or, you know, kind of crisscrossing these um, um, these waters, you know, which could be tempestuous. I mean, at, at times there would be small streams, but then within hours they would swell up to form, you know, really torrential uh, flows. So one of the key things that they realized was to actually plant a particular tree called Ficus elastica, which belongs to the mulberry or the fig family. So it's a, it's a, it's a local tree that kind of grows there, a native tree that grows there. And it's also called the India rubber. So, uh, so these trees are actually fascinating because, you know, when you look at them, um, they have really dense boughs or, or crowns. And uh, they're also amazing from a biodiversity perspective because they actually flower and fruit are at the peak of, of summers. So in effect, almost all the herbivores actually depend on these trees for food during the peak summers. And uh, so, and because the tree's uh, crowns are so heavy, what happens is, you know, the tree sometimes cannot really hold itself up. And so it's got an adaptation, which basically are aerial roots or prop roots, you know, which kind of generate from the branches and then they 
grow down like ropes, thin ropes. So imagine Mowgli or Tarzan <laughs> in your mind. And then when they actually touch the ground, they start developing into subsidiary stems. You know, they become woody and thick. And it's this adaptation that the local communities have actually used to channel. So they, they kind of literally um, train these prop roots from both the sides through hollowed out uh, arachnid palm uh, trunks, which are tied together and put in like a primary structure. These prop roots are then, you know, kind of woven around them. So what happens is the primary structure eventually decomposes because of the wetness and the fact that it's dead tissue. Uh, but then the, the prop roots then develop into a woody bridge, almost like an exoskeleton, which only gets stronger with time because ficus trees actually grow for hundreds of years. And what it also does is that, like I told you, you know, these mountain slopes are soft. So they're already eroded. The soil is kind of, you know, depleted almost at the steep valleys. And these trees, the roots, they form this reticulate network that kind of holds down the soil as well. So, I mean, if you kind of think about it, come to think of it, I mean, isn't it amazing? You know, you have one solution uh, and it kind of solves a lot of problems for them. And it's, an, it's a community effort. So these bridges are not made over time, which is why I completely agree with Claire that these may not be immediately transferable to a city like London or, or Manchester, for example. But then these are built over time and the community. So I'm walking across and I see, oh, the prop roots have grown a little bit. I would again entwine them. And then I'll walk away. So, you know, it's like it's like generations have, you know, kind of helped in building them. So, oh, yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> it it's beautiful to think of as well, isn't it? It's amazing. And um, when I when I listened to you speaking there and um, earlier you were saying how, you know, people would laugh like you would laugh at some of the kind of ways in which you would these areas would be protected and that comes from a, a an education system which su suggests that you know that eurocentric way of doing things is the best way um but maybe it isn't so we really do need to not just look at india but many many other indigenous practices mm -hmm. which unfortunately may well have been eradicated due to, you know, <laughs> colonialism, but maybe trying to revisit uh, a lot of a lot of these. Um, now, you um, talk about these nature based solutions. Um, and when you try to think about how practitioners might be able to introduce them to a place like London. So maybe a bit of reverse uh, information spreading, shall we call it. Uh, how, how can we potentially do something like that over here? Oh, I think the answer for that question, you know, kind of lies at three different levels. I think uh, primarily it's about acceptance that there are ways of doing things which are probably not dictated to us by a rule book you know, or by an industry that is so heavily, um, you know, entangled in fossil fuels or, or other, you know, practices which may not really do a lot of good to our planet in the long run. And once that battle is won, I think, you know, we are half there, you know. And the second way is to kind of um, then initiate research. Um, you know, it could be archival research on what used to happen in these regions in the past. Like hedgerows are a great example research different ways in which, you know, we could tap into the knowledge systems which are there. Because you and I, I mean, all of us are um, the progeny of our ancestors who have survived 
in the most difficult conditions in forests or you know in 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 where, where there were climatic events which would have probably you know erased species you know completely so if we are alive then that means it's testimony to the fact that you know people who did not have access to technology could also survive so uh, i think the third part that i'm coming to you know is is probably the acceptance that you know a lot of things that we take for granted in a city like london uh, we have to kind of realize the cost like for example covid happened and there were cities which were being sanitized entirely so you were spraying chemicals in the entire city to protect us humans but then what happens to the pollinators you know what happens to the bees so i think rachel carson's silent spring you know was basically a a call for action maybe 60 or 50 years back and i think it still holds true even now so yeah so that's the answer fascinating and actually when you're speaking i'm thinking of a, a quote which is uh, whatever you believe to be true the opposite may also be true and when we're thinking about how we design our cities um the uh, landscape architecture as well as the uh, built architecture that um we think about completely rethinking the premise of how we go about that and 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 you mentioned there Claire about the money and how we perceive value actually um and the fact that we look at value in terms of pounds and pence what's going to be the cheapest way of maintaining this going forward but actually is it the best value for humans for our place for our planet and so when we start to look at value in that different way uh you know can we approach landscape architecture can we approach architecture can we approach the built environment through a different lens where value is less about okay what's the best bottom line financially and what is the best bottom line for us as people and the planet right you're both nodding so that's good i'm making sense i'm not just talking out of my um behind um which i often do um one of one of the differences that strikes me about the contrast between um indigenous practices and and much of the urban sort of development we see today is this understanding of you know time span you know what i think to a great extent you're talking about Claire I'm not going to see the outcome uh, of of my creation um you know it's going to ha- evolve long after I'm gone and there is this idea of now versus the future speak to that point Sandeep I mean how how do we change that we all actually love to believe that the structures that we make would probably stay forever and um I've heard comparisons of the pyramid wherein people say well they've stood the test of time for 4000 years uh but if you really zoom out and look at um the earth in general the earth has probably been there for 4.6 billion years that's like tens of thousands of times more than the lifespan of a pyramid and um we've had cities which have come up and eventually you know kind of degraded we've had rivers which swell up which kind of shift its course and we've had societies that kind of adapt to those but it's only now that we have this obsession for permanence you know this obsession for you know things to remain the same so that we can go on with our lives we can you know and 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 really not think about the other species as such so i think there definitely is a way forward wherein small changes maybe small incremental changes i mean not in in our personal lives as well as in governmental policies 
uh, in landscape architecture as a practice, in, in the other allied fields, you know, if one can really think through this. And because we are in a climate emergency, we are at a time where, you know, the sixth mass extinction is actually going on. Probably the first that is, uh, you know, kind of pushed by us, a single species as humans. So I think, yes, there is. But then if I have to go to the nuances, then maybe there would be many, many more stories. So I'd rather <laughs> let Claire, you know, kind of share her experience. Well, I think there's a thing about permanence, isn't there, which is very, from a very human perspective, which is very actually quite temporary. Yeah. Uh, when you think about, when you're talking about longevity and the, the life span of the planet, uh, which is, you know, it's, it kind of, it blows your mind really, doesn't it, Claire? There's a great book on landscape architecture by an author called Hal Mogridge. And he sort of describes humans as these little pink squishy things on the surface of the earth and we're very vulnerable. We've got this sort of arrogance, I think, that we think we're important, but we're just a blink. I think arrogance is quite an important word when you're talking about um, when countries came and um, occupied other countries and they're sort of wiping out of indigenous um practices that's an arrogance there's also arrogance that we know better than nature that we know better than things that evolved over millennia i mean if you think of something like the um the internal combustion engine in terms of history it's going to be very brief its impact it's going to be horrible but not even a blink but sort of horses and transport and other ways much more sustainable form of transport have been there for you know millennia and there's going to be 100 year period where the combustion engine came in made our transformed our lives made a lot of mess as well and hopefully relatively soon be gone so it's that there's that sense of permanence in your little bubble of time but really it is just a blink and I think landscape architecture is a good profession for making you giving you a bit of humility about your place in time because your tree you know your tree looks nice when it comes from the nursery but it's going to look amazing in 200 years time if someone remembers to water it and look after it for you Now, clearly, you're you're both very similarly minded about how we approach, you know, the profession. Um, The question is the wider profession, people who are not in this room, the people who are listening to this now. um, Is there enough of an understanding about the kinds of questions we should be asking of ourselves when we're when we're going about? this profession? I mean, you're shaking your head, Sandeep. You don't think we are asking the right questions? Uh, I don't think so. Because I, again, uh, you know, I come from the global south. And um, clearly, the priorities that I see in in decision making, um, or even conceptualizing of projects, um, I do see that there is quite a lot of room for us to, you know, kind of think out of the box. And I wouldn't blame anyone particular for that, because I think a lot of it has to do with our education. I mean, even uh, the arrogance that Claire was actually, you know, speaking about, I think that also kind of comes from our education system, wherein we are made to believe that we are much better off than the others. So, um, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think there is quite a lot of room, not just um, in terms of finding solutions, but also conceptually, you know, thinking through what the problem is. Because what we may perceive as a problem may not really be the real problem. That may be a symptom. And the problem may be something else. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really don't think we are asking the right questions. What questions should we be asking then? Uh, a lot. I mean, um, the fact that are we doing the right things? Uh, you know, for example, when we look at a project, we kind of respond to a client's brief. But then the very 
I mean, questioning the very brief. You know, I think that is where a starting point would be. And also questioning our bylaws, you know, like, for example, why should all buildings in the tropics, for example, be air-conditioned for them to get a green certificate rating? Mm-hmm. I do understand that it works in colder regions, but then a country like India, which has maybe um, eight or nine different geographic conditions, climatic conditions within one country, could one uh, blanket bylaw be applicable for a tropical peninsula tip versus you know the a village a hamlet in the himalayas so probably not and about planting you know we are we are taught like as landscape architects in in schools we are kind of encouraged to read about plants understand them and eventually when we start uh, working in offices all offices have their own set of plants that they Claire is nodding ahead yeah <laughs> their own set of favorites you know that they kind of end up you know reaching out to because probably those plants do well we know those answers but then kind of stepping back and taking out that time to kind of find answers whether are we doing the right things or just because a vendor came to us and said oh we have a wonderful product we need to kind of ask do we really need to invest in that or are there other ways in which we could just use peat or soil and then you know kind of achieve the same so yeah i mean i think many many at many levels there are various questions which we need to really ask and claire to what extent do you think the client is being challenged enough around their briefs? It's really difficult because if I was independently wealthy, I could pick and choose the projects I worked on and say, this is the standard I'm working to. I'm only doing, you know, not even net zero, actually zero. I'm not offsetting a thing. I'm going to do these wonderful schemes that are exactly what I aspire to. That's very difficult because if you put yourself in that position, your client pool is much, much smaller. I think the client pool for that is probably almost zero. So it is about the clients, but you can't really blame the clients. I think one of the things we need to move towards is definitely some form of legislation so it levels it for everybody. Because if you're the practice that really puts the effort in, has very high standards, unless the client is allowing for that in the tenders that you put in, you're just going to be more expensive because the research you were talking about... um, that takes time for each material to go out and have a look about the carbon impact of it. If it, you know, even if you have got the um, information given to you, sometimes it's hard to get through that. But if the you know, if the uh, the rep from the company's been to see you and given you some little samples, and you think, well, that'll work fine. I've used it before. That's what you do because it's also not taking too much of a leap as well. It's always a risk designing something different for a client and taking a gamble on a new product. So it is partly the clients, but they're all commercial, often commercial entities or public sector. They're really short of money. I mean, the cost of materials increase has really impacted on people's choice of what they can do. So I don't think it sits necessarily with the client, but we can't be as um, environmentally friendly as we'd like to be on projects just because of the wider context we're working in. You've both spoken about legislation, education. Uh, you're in education now. Uh, so tell me, Sandeep, you know, how do you educate differently so that actually as we move through time, we might see a different outcome and maybe even impacting maybe the lobbying around legislation? I'll, I'll speak about my experience in India. Um, so um, I used to tutor in the architecture colleges. So even though I'm a landscape architect, I'm also an architect. So the the primary thing that we used to do in the first year of architecture was to literally get the students to go out in the garden patch and plant vegetables. 
uh, in a city like Mumbai, it's a metropolitan city, and you know one that kind of aspires to be, um, you know, many other uh, large cities. You know, the the people there uh, have actually lost their touch with where do the food really come from. You know, they don't really know these aspects. So we we, we would design these modules with my other colleagues, wherein we would kind of pull them out of architecture, kind of help them see the larger perspective. you know from a geographical perspective from a financial perspective sometimes from a sustainable experts perspective or sometimes even from uh, you know the idea of legislation so you know why are rules made the way they are or why do we behave the way that we do or why are our buildings designed the way they are why do we have toilets on top of toilets or you know or, yeah i mean these are questions i mean you know in the past when um you know uh, the uh, when the theory of the germ theory wasn't really accepted or when people were talking about the miasma theory you know it basically meant that you know maybe 100 or 200 years back people believed that it's the foul odor which really causes the disease but even though that was only symptomatic of something that was much larger right so we didn't really know about the germs so and it was john snow in london you know who actually created the cholera map which kind of gave way to a lot of what we know today in epidemiology so i mean these are nuggets these are you know these are important ways of helping people to think out of the box and that's something that you know we kind of used to do in india uh the other thing that we would uh, definitely do was to kind of transcend the boundaries of architecture so we would say designing a building or putting in the infrastructure or being a good architect that you could go out and then work in an office is not enough you need to be able to understand larger things you need to be able to have the confidence and the knowledge to question your clients sometimes or gently kind of show them the way because like claire rightly said sometimes the clients are not wrong you know it's just that they don't really know so the responsibility kind of lies with us so yeah i mean i kind of take that role pretty seriously and so we've designed modules which kind of not look at architecture in, in or landscape architecture in its conventional sense but it kind of transcends a boundary it sometimes pushes on a bit too far and um, to answer claire's question so i'm, I'm uh, the the fact that about finances i think the root of the problem really lies with the way we imagine gdp or you know our primary module of finance right i mean we all know that we live in a planet with finite resources and how can then we push for a growth which is exponential year after year so if you don't do well from the year before then political you know governments fall the country's rankings go down so i think so there are issues with those basic primal questions there so landscape architecture is only a small cog in the larger system certainly um uh, clinging on to some optimism about how <laughs> how we can create change you know i i talked about taking personal responsibility uh, a little bit earlier and how crucial that is to be able to follow through with some of the key issues that you've raised in your article about you know how we use materials the impact they have uh, what other thoughts do you have about how we can really create change in our professions so that through that personal responsibility so that we can see a different future i think the kind of things we're doing now talking about it writing about it bothering people annoying them lobbying them however you want to describe it and it's in your working practice but it's getting it as far as you can as quickly as can as you can one of the issues at the moment is we just don't have enough information to make quite a lot of our decisions so some of that is pushing for research so you are making a decision you are presenting something to a client 
you've actually got the evidence and proof behind that. Um, yes, I just I think sharing information and having that open minded mindset and also remembering that landscape architecture is part of wider construction. So any and all the different professions, all the different professional um, bodies and institutes sharing knowledge, because I think a lot of different reports are being written, a lot of pieces of research are being approached. But if they're not all shared correctly and sort of deliberately presented to interact with each other, we're just going to take a lot longer than we could have done. I hear that and and, um, I'm really trying to do that work myself, to be honest with you. So trying to align all the built environment professions to create a really solid and aligned way forward. Um, And really, really great to hear from you both around the issues of pushing for more research, uh, going back uh, to those indigenous ideas and those really fundamentally living in greater harmony with uh, you know people and planet together um, checking our own arrogance it's been a really rich conversation thank you very much Claire Thurwell and Sandeep Menon and read the latest edition of Landscape Online just go to Landscape Institute website and click on journal deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.